rule number one, I guess this is an advantage to formulating our own as well, was quality had to be key. It had to be as good as, if not better than the leading natural liquid alternative, because there is still that lingering, and there certainly was back then, the lingering belief that natural products don't work. Hello and welcome to the Solve Know Your Customer podcast, where we interview some of the best entrepreneurs and leaders in the direct-to-consumer space. I'm Guy Horrocks, co-founder of Solve, the data engine for e-commerce. We help companies better collect, manage, and action their data, all on a platform that's owned by you. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by rockstar entrepreneur, Brianne West. She's the founder of Atik, one of the fastest growing companies in the beauty and cosmetic space. But more importantly, Brianne is a trailblazer in ethical and environmental businesses. There are over 80 billion plastic shampoo and conditioner bottles thrown out every single year. And Atik is proud to be 100% plastic free. So Brianne, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. And perhaps you can kick things off by giving everyone a little bit of background on Atik and how you founded the business. Atik is a cosmetics company we call it a regenerative beauty brand, but we are here to give back more to the planet than we take, if you like, which sounds maybe a bit twee. But the idea is that everything we do and everything we make is as ethical and as fair and as sustainable as possible. So it's going beyond the idea of a sustainable beauty brand, which is, you know, keeping things status quo and moving towards a more giving back, more regenerative beauty brand. So we make things like solid shampoo bars, conditioners, moisturizers, everything is in bar form. So it can be wrapped in cardboard, which means you get rid of the plastic. But then we also, you know, use fairly uh, traded ingredients. Our team are paid a living wage. We donate uh, 2% of sales to charity. And we basically try and do everything as ethically as possible. But we're not perfect. Let me just preface that. We are always trying to improve. Um, I started it in my kitchen, uh, what feels like 100 years ago, but was just just under 10 years ago now in 2012. Uh, I was studying at university, hate, hate, hate working for someone else and figured (laughs) if I wanted a life, like I didn't see my um, fellow students, fellow flatmates having because they had to work for whoever else, um, starting a business was was a good option. That's not how that works at all. But that was really where it came from and with this drive to save the world and believing business can do that uh, all culminated in a tech. It's my third like real business, but sort of the only one that became a real business, if that makes sense. Could you give us a little bit of info on what the previous two were leading up to a Because I suppose a lot of, of that journey can be quite um harrowing for people that sort of first start up and just did you take any learnings from those businesses as well yeah I learned a lot um, I learned number one don't ignore your tax obligations uh, I learned the IRD <laughs> can be really really nice to work with as long as you work with them um, so the first one was a cosmetics company started straight out of the, I think the day I started university um, went fine sold it um, but it was very kind of banal, boring, your, your standard product. So I got bored. Um, the second one was a confectionery company, Spoonable Fudge. So a bit of a unique product, but it didn't really have any positive. It didn't give anyone anything except potentially diabetes. You know, it didn't do anything for anyone. So got bored of that too. To me, what I learned, I guess, more than anything beyond the financial stuff was business for me has to have a purpose that makes it worthwhile yep. beyond making money. 
That's awesome. Well, we had an amazing guest last uh, last podcast on episode two with Eva from Maud and and also um, before that, Josh from New Republic. And I think one of the, the things that came out of that was the difference between product companies and sort of mission-orientated companies. And um, you can have a company that builds great products, but it's quite different when you're sort of building towards a sort of goal, which may actually be unattainable when you start the business. So I feel like mm. you've definitely built a mission-based company around a tech, which is very much uh, admirable and uh, awesome to see these kind of businesses actually succeed as well. So for the people that don't sort of understand exactly the sort of how different this is to what the status quo was, I think of when you buy shampoo, you get a bottle of liquid. You decided not to do that and do everything in uh, in a bar form, which is basically a concentrate. And when you start thinking about it and stepping back, you think, wow, of course, if I buy a concentrated bar, surely that's going to go a lot further than a diluted liquid form of a shampoo. So does it, how, how much further does it go? How did you come up with that idea? Because um, it feels like that was a real, that was sort of a real signature product for you guys. Yeah. I don't you think it's absurd that we buy a product that's 70 to, depending on the product, 90% water, when you literally use it in a, in a room that is full of water, where water is literally on tap? <laughs> I've, never, I've never thought of that, but now that you say that, yeah, it, it sounds ridiculous. <laughs> it, exactly. That is ridiculous. Um, and I just always thought it was. Um, and I, there's a lot of products on the market well within and outside the cosmetic industry where that stands true. So I just thought, what happens if you package up the active ingredients and sell that to a consumer? Um, obviously, there's a lot of customer education that has to go along because you were taught since I think, in the 1920s that liquid shampoo was the thing you had to use. And then body liquid body wash is newer. But at the end of the day, you assume your cosmetics have to go in a, in a bottle. And I get it. You know what? Sometimes it's more convenient. But um Convenience always comes at a cost to the planet, usually. And um, I just didn't see the point in doing something that everyone else is doing. The idea of, of making products in a, in a bottle that is 30% recycled plastic, I think, is well, it might be a slightly better step in the right direction, but it's not enough. I didn't, want to, I didn't want to do it at all. So I just taught myself cosmetic chemistry. I'm a biochemist. Uh, as I mentioned, I was at university. So I, I leaned on the university, tested on all my friends and flatmates and irritated everybody to death. And um, yeah, over a long period of time, did a lot of research. So, t- testing on your flatmates. Like, I'm hoping, I'm hoping there's some funny stories there because I, I instantly think of my wife who, uh, when she was early days in university, uh, she got some jobs where you'd go to the supermarket and doing promos for certain different food products. And I think she used to get to take home the leftovers from it. And one of the leftovers, I, th- I think from memory, I'm going to butcher this, but. Um, she basically took home these muffins, but I think they were laxatives or something. And then her flatmates all took them, and then obviously <laughs> had to go to the toilet quite instantly. Uh, so, were there any sort of testing failures on your flatmates? Because they're obviously the most uh, the perfect guinea pigs. Because no one feels sorry for your flatmates. Yeah, it's that tough. Nothing as cool of, as your story. Flatting, right? Nothing as good okay. as that story. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, it sounds like quite the journey. Uh, it's it's intimidating to think of a category. I suppose you've got that background. Um, in that sort of biochemistry type sort of arena. Uh, but as someone that doesn't have such a technical background, it seems intimidating to sort of start a product where you're mixing things. And I think the the standard approach for entrepreneurs these days wouldn't be to not have any idea on how it's really made and then go to China or something and get a factory to make it for you 
without ever going through those steps in the process. So I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on what advantages and power it gave to the company you were building, knowing that you'd sort of built it from the ground up and didn't just go and and get a factory that was making shampoo to say, hey, like, can you make a bar for me? I think it boils down to two things. One's knowledge. I intimately know the product. I know exactly why something will be doing something. Um, I know, therefore, how to formulate something new. Um, which will come into number point two, but you know it, so you can pass that knowledge within the team. And whilst, yes, when you're working with a factory who will formulate something for you, they can pass that on, but you don't know it. You know, the, there's top level knowledge and then there's understanding of how a chemical works and functions and, and holds together. So number one, that's helpful from a formulation perspective, but also customer's perspective. But number two is by doing it ourselves, we can do it quicker. It is not uncommon for the likes of Unilever, for example, to have a four to five year R&D process, which I just think is nonsense. I've had people before in um, in factories say, oh, we can do it in two years. I'm like, that's rubbish. You should be able to do it in six, depending on what it is, six months. If it's something harder and it needs a lot of R&D, fine, 12 to 18, but your average product four to five years is a joke. And the ability to do that means we could work with our customers to determine what they wanted, figure out trends quicker. And it just comes with a whole host of advantages. Speed would be the big one. Yeah. It's so cool because I think think of our friends at Fix and Fog, Roman and Andrea, who built such a cool peanut butter company. And it's, I'm sure it must be easier to go to a factory that sort of does some kind of peanut butter and you know, do that, but, you know, they've built both the brand and the whole authenticity behind their company, but they've also sort of learned and it's shaped what the company is today. So you can kind of see it in those authentic brands that haven't sort of skipped all the steps and slapped a logo on a t-shirt or, you know, whatever it is. Um, yeah. And it is delicious. And it's, yeah. Fix and Fog definitely is delicious. You've gone about fundraising in a very different way as well. Um, that's quite unique and it probably has pros and cons around your crowdfunding background so maybe you could just tell everyone how you got it off the ground like you know did you have to you know put your own money in to start with did you get it to a certain point then crowdfund and then you know just talk us through the pros and cons of that well I had no money at all being a student so uh, I put the odd bit in but certainly you know a couple of hundreds of dollars I'm talking to buy the initial ingredients and I uh, funded it off cash flow for the first probably year and a half so it didn't do a lot of growing because it's difficult to grow with no money as I'm sure you're aware but we got a bit of traction anyway and there were people who knew of us or I guess I say us it was just me at that point it was just me um (laughs) but it makes it sound bigger when you say us it does right yeah (laughs) It all it all sounds slightly odd, but yeah, um, they they knew of the product, and that kind of pilot phase was quite helpful in developing a really good product and understanding what pain points were. So I wouldn't I wouldn't change that now. My very first uh, investment came from who was then my became my business partner, who I met through a university competition, and that was only about fifty grand, I think, for a memory. And then very quickly after that, uh, we decided that we needed more money because we needed a brand refresh. At that point, the the packaging was laughable. Just no, not a retail uh, ready package by any stretch. So we looked at equity crowdfunding, which had just been legalized in New Zealand. Um, I talked to Anna Gunther from Pledge Me a lot. And I just loved the idea, really, for two reasons. One, you can bring people who truly support your journey and love what you are doing and want to help you achieve your mission. And also those people are usually the ones who can't afford to invest in stuff. Because back before Sharesies, also another great company, 
and Hatch and all those, there was no particularly accessible way for people to invest in the stock market. And also, it just seemed to be one of those things that only wealthy people could do, right? Whereas equity crowdfunding, where people buy a slice of emerging businesses, that was a way of making that accessible. Massively high risk, for sure. But I really like the idea of being able to bring people who truly understood your mission and wanted to succeed, bring them on the journey with you and hope hopefully reward them for that early trust. So we did two rounds of equity crowdfunding. Uh, we did the first one in 2015 and we raised uh, $200,000 in 10 days, which felt like a me- mega success. Very exciting. Especially as no one had really heard of us at that point, right? We're still very small. We got a lot of marketing out of that Pledge Me campaign. The second round we did in 2017, we did half a million dollars in 90 minutes, all while I was on stage at the Social Enterprise World Forum. So I missed all of the excitement, which was a shame because I, there is nothing, honestly, there is nothing on earth like getting an email saying, hi, such and such has just given you 30 grand. That is a nice email. I have raised money through VCs <laughs> and, it's, and it doesn't compare. So if you talk about pain points, yes. Um, administration and trying to ensure that everybody feels they are heard and communicated with was a little bit difficult. Uh, so the first round bought us 150 shareholders. The second round bought us, I think, an extra 200. So all in all, we ended up about 350-ish. We didn't put them in a holding company, which arguably I might do the next time if I was to do it again, uh, just to make things a little bit easier. But all in all, a really positive experience. Whenever we had AGMs, it was like a big party. It was just highly recommend. If you have a business that is right for equity crowdfunding and you take it, you know, if you take it really, really seriously and understand that you are dealing with people's money, then I highly recommend it. Yeah, I think uh, the one thing I always find with startups is quite often the first time founders will go and raise from a VC and they'll do the whole round and give the VC the whole round. And I sort of never quite understand it because you think of the the benefits you've just talked about with crowdfunding and you think of things like the Obama Hope crowdfunding campaign for his political campaign. You're basically getting cheerleaders and people that have evangelists for your brand that are going to go and even if it's softly to another person, soft sell, hey, I'm in this cool company. I'm involved in this cool. There's this great entrepreneur. I put some money in. It's doing really well. You know, suddenly it sort of amplifies it. It's not just you. You've got this whole big group. And then on the non-consumer side, I always, I love, you know, we, we, we were lucky to have great investors at all of our companies that we've had. But um, if I look at our companies now, you know, some of these investors are providing intros and doors opening that would struggle to get to. And so I never quite understand the people that you know, they go out and the first VC that knocks on their door, they let them take the whole round. I don't know if you agree with that, but like, I, I definitely feel that way. Yeah, well, you're not told. I got so much bad advice. I got some great advice, but I got so much bad advice when we started looking at capital raising. And it was very much, a, oh, this is a good deal. You should take it um, from people who really should have known better. And if it wasn't for the fact that I am incredibly stubborn and irritatingly focused on values at all costs, um, I probably would have made some really bad deals. And I probably would gone, have raised an entire round with just one VC and it would have been a disaster. And yeah, um, unfortunately, I think a lot of founders, if you've never done it before, capital raising is terrifying. I remember the first time I embarked on due diligence. I mean, yeah, it's definitely it's sort of a, a step into the unknown. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully you won't. You can just start the next business and it'll take off. You might not even need <laughs> investors, which would be great. Um, yeah, I suppose now developing a new category like this, it must be hard, even if you start getting a little bit of traction, it must be hard figuring out if people actually wanted 
what you're selling because it's so different when you think of when anyone thinks of shampoo they think oh yeah i've got a bottle of shampoo it's liquid it's the idea that you're selling a bar you're going to get some people not really jumping on board with something that's disruptive or different so i suppose how did you figure out that people actually wanted this or what they wanted or is it did you just sort of slowly evolve it and get over time or did you have a sort of light bulb moment of saying wow this is this is it um guess it's kind of a combination of both. Um, so I've always lead with the whole why, you know, very Simon Sinek-esque. If you lead with why, people understand. Uh, at the end of the day, you're absolutely right. Most people don't understand or want a shampoo bar, at least initially. That's not necessarily the case now, but it was back then. People didn't understand. Shampoo was liquid, end of story. But when you explained why, you'd break down the barriers and people would be keen to try it. And that's when the quality of the product came in. So rule number one, and I guess this is an advantage to formulating our own as well, was quality had to be key. It had to be as good as, if not better than the leading natural liquid alternative. Because there is still that lingering, and there certainly was back then, the lingering belief that natural products don't work. And a solid, natural, plastic-free, ethical product certainly isn't going to work. So we had to ensure that once the, um, the early adopters who were hardcore eco-friendly once they tried it they told their friends who were less so and that was the way we sort of broke into the market and it was when we got to that second tier of customer who would buy things because of the quality that was when you knew we had the right product and that took time um but we grew massively through word of mouth because the product was good is good and people understood the why so you've sort of found these these ideal early adopters and then word of mouth and that sort of loyalty organically built the brand over time, how do you sort of track what customers like or what the next product is? Is it intuition-based? Is it sort of survey-based? Do you have data? Is it a combination? Just interested to know, you know, now that you've had this big success with that first product, how do you know kind of how to expand and, and what people are actually looking for? I'd really like to say it's really data-led, but it's not yet. It is becoming more so. Um, we were quite late putting any kind of real CRM or, or data capturing anything in. Uh, about 50% of our revenue is D2C. So we have an awful lot of knowledge or data available. We just haven't been collecting it. So we're a little bit late to that. But it's mostly intuition. It's knowing our customers. We spend a lot of time on social media with them. We have one-on-one -on -one conversations with them. We have insanely good customer service. My team is phenomenal because it is the, the rule is you make the customer happy at all costs, even if they are dead wrong. And that engenders a lot of conversations. So you can then find out what people want because they trust you. And that's really important to us is that they trust us and that what we put out is correct. So when you have that close relationship with your customers, you can then understand what they want. We ask them all the time. People love being involved with the product development process. We have thousands of testers around the world. And um, we are a little bit fly by the seat of our pants in terms of we don't have like a five-year product development roadmap. We have sort of an 18-month one, and then we usually pull things forward because we're excited about it. Yeah, it, it will become more data-led, and we will have more – we will find out what people's shopping habits are going. Like, we know now that they enter usually the brand through the hair care, so they'll buy a shampoo and a conditioner. They'll love that. They'll go into face care, and then they'll go into body care, for example. Um, the hair care is the gateway bar, if you like. Uh, it's not something we really knew. It's something I thought might be the case, but we didn't know it for sure until uh, sort of beginning of last year. So we're beginning to utilize that more, but it's we're not a, a super data lead company as yet. I'm a bit scared of it. <laughs> That's fair enough. I mean, it, when when you've got passion and a purpose and then a great product, it's sort of, you can you can get away with uh, not having every single thing buttoned up. Um, I suppose now, uh, you know, the more that you can collect first party data and the more you can kind of personalize experiences, it sort of leads into 
you know, better products, better customer experience. You can do a lot with it. And I suppose this brings me back to my next question, which would be the fact that you've got D2C and wholesale. How have you managed to straddle those two? And um, obviously some of the pros and cons are quite obvious, but maybe you could talk us through how you think about the two, because for people that have sold through, you know, Whole Foods or Sephora, uh, they realize that you're not getting that end first party data. I guess an easy quick way of looking at it would be we only really rely on the data we get from our D2C customers uh, because you're absolutely right whilst you get you do get some sales aggregate data if you pay for it from retailers and sometimes they'll give you a little bit more they might be able to give you the target demographic which is useless they might be able to give you some baseline data I mean Amazon won't give you anything so we can really only rely on our own our first first party data that you just called it see I'm learning um that's That's what we rely on and that's what we're trying to build dashboards for and and understand more about. Um, Retail is interesting because it's a brand awareness in a lot of of cases. So a lot of people will, they will see you in store. They'll realize you're a real brand. You're not some tiny little brand no one's ever heard of. If you're in Woolworths or whatever, um, in CVS, they will realize you're a real brand. Then they go to your website and actually you can capture them that way too, particularly if you've got a limited range in stores. So we use it as a brand awareness tool and a driver to the website in some instances. You have to be careful because retailers, rightfully so, need to protect their revenue streams. So you do have to be careful with it. But it is a balance for sure. And as we grow, I do see D2C becoming bigger, which is unusual. But I always imagined that Atik would be a D2C first business. And we really only explored distribution when it became apparent that people want to smell and, and touch them, which, again, should have been obvious now thinking about it. But I was young and naive. Yeah. And as as we grow, I want D2C to grow and, and still maintain that 50-50 ratio, if not increase. And um, then we'll be able to use that to do a better job in retail stores. Because you can use that to uh, influence where you go. Um, so, for example, where we're going into CVS is being uh, informed by where we sell the most online, which I'm sure everybody can assume is, is New York and California. And oddly enough, number three is Texas. We see that quite a bit. Mm. <laughs> Texas is... Uh... It's a pretty big market. But I suppose um, now you've got this brand and you've got really good understanding of who your customer is and you're selling direct and ideally trying to sell more direct. How do you think about the big players, you know, when they start copying what you're doing and like putting out their own solid shampoo bars? You know, how do you sort of ensure that someone who's going to buy their first one, you know, looks at yours still and you get that awareness rather than them buying from someone like Procter & Gamble or some other big Fortune 500 who tries to copy what you're doing? Yeah, every big CPG has released some kind of version of a solid shampoo bar. Never even released a bar and called it one of our names. It's fine. It is what it is. At the end of the day, we did yeah. <laughs> genuinely inspire an industry and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to change an industry because we want to create a real solution. So that's good. The one thing that bothers me is that these companies are entering this market, but they're not copying any of the values. They're just releasing a plastic-free product. But the problem they have, of course, is how can you talk about a plastic-free message when 99.9% of your products are still packaged in plastic? It's very hard to have an authentic message about that. And that's where it takes constant focus on still talking about our why and all our ethics. That sets us apart. The quality with the other products is great. Um, it's it's a bit different, but it's it still comes down to values. At the end of the day, there is it's a big enough market for everyone to exist, but they help educate your customer. As a result, now the market for shampoo bars as opposed to liquid shampoo is about 10% versus 5%. They are helping educate people on bars in general alongside us. 
Yeah, I suppose that's kind of the Elon Musk or even the Allbirds, you know, with Tim Brown and him sort of saying, well, I think um, Steve Madden copied their shoe. And I think he sort of said, you know, it'd feel, I wouldn't feel quite as bad about it if they copied all the, the sort of morals and ethics and the mission behind the company. But them just making crappy versions uh, that are totally not good for the environment does piss you off. And I think we saw that with Eva at Maud last week where she was like, well, if they copy me, obviously that's lazy and I'm pissed off. But the fact that they then turned my product into an ugly product, like that pisses me off even more. You know? <laughs> so, um, you've started in New Zealand, you've then gone global. How do you feel like the customers respond differently in each market? People are people and obviously people have, have different motivations, but at the end of the day, most people want to do something good or at least not too bad. So if you appeal to that and you explain why your product is doing better than a subsequent uh, different brand, then you're already on to a winner. It's just tailoring what message. So in Australia, for example, palm oil free is a really big win, whereas in America, no one really knows what palm oil is yet. That's still an area of ongoing customer education. So they're much more about plastic. So it's understanding, again, knowing your customer and, and understanding what it is that motivates them. And it's obviously it's going to be different for different people and there's going to be little subclusters in different areas. But that's how, again, D2C and your hyper-targeting can be really, really helpful. And I feel ridiculous trying to talk about this with someone who knows so much more about this than I do. But we're beginning <laughs> to explore how we can tailor our website to be really, really granular and clever when it with different people who log on and finding out what it is that they have previously bought and why and, and what it is that motivates them as to what information we show them. But yeah, people people around the world, we're all people. We do want to do, do the best we can. And it's just giving them messages that resonate with what they know and educating them further on, on things that they might have a slight idea about. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I feel like my business partner, Neil Capel, uh, was the founder of Sail Through which was uh, one of the largest personalization platforms in the world. And so they would do one-to-one -one personalization and a million people could go to a website or read an email and get a million variations of content and timing. And um, you sort of build dynamic templates that uh, based on a very rich data profile. So we're still amazed that he built that, I think, 10 years ago and sold it two years ago. Uh, but you're still amazed that you go to Nike and Sephora and all these companies, all birds and you basically get the same experience, whether you're a man, a woman, whether you're after discounts. Um, so we're still kind of a bit amazed after 10 years of trying to champion um, that idea. It sort of feels like people are starting to realize um, the value of, of personalizing experiences now. And, and I suppose also the technology is kind of starting to allow people to do it. That's probably the other part. I, I wonder how you sort of look at the different channels of growing Ethique. When you sort of look at acquisition, um, email, website, um, like all these different sort of channels you can go and you can obviously do so many different things with marketing. Um, what are the ones that you think are important for a team? Email's a big one because you can get a, across a reasonable amount of information to an already engaged audience. It's just getting people to sign up to your email obviously is, is the biggie, um, but you know, bribery exists. Let's be frank. That's what those 15% discounts, if you sign up, <laughs> that's what it is. It's bribery. Um, we, we try and be a little bit more on brand about it. You know, we try and entice people, but yeah, and, join and you can be a member of our trial team that's a big a big thing social to me is almost becoming less important okay no let me take that back facebook facebook advertising which was a massive part of it last year as everybody has been more than aware is, is becoming less and less important and more and more expensive and less and less effective um we're beginning to explore tiktok for customer acquisition and i know we are behind the able there but um our consumer is on tiktok we need to be there too um yeah, I would consider those probably the most important aspects of our 
marketing and engagement side of things? We are hearing that a lot. I mean, um, Josh on the on the first episode of the show was talking about um, you know they've they've found a lot of success with TikTok, and I suppose these emerging brands like um, these emerging social platform brands. Um, uh, as they grow, that's sort of where you get more reach at a more affordable cost. And once they become mature, like Facebook, it, it gets a little bit more expensive and harder to reach. Um, so that's very interesting. I think the other thing that was the big game changer last year was iOS 15 and iOS 14 with Apple and uh, these third-party cookie blockers seemed to um, suddenly mean that all Facebook's metrics dropped and people started sort of really questioning whether the ads were driving um, transactions, which for some people they were still, and others, uh, I think, like yourself, have started to question that, which um, seems fair. (laughs) Um, uh, That's where we really believe in what we're doing because we're flipping the whole industry of data on its head instead of you buying a third-party SaaS platform. uh, We're saying you should own your data in-house and you should be the main person collecting it, not... Google and Facebook and Klaviyo and Shopify and all these other teams. And by collecting it yourself, you can collect about 10 times more data because you're collecting the raw clickstream data. And so then when you come to audit like Facebook attribution and look at ROAS or, you know, is this ad agency or this, you know, email campaign actually performing, you're actually sitting on all the data. So you've got an unfair advantage to basically figure out what's actually working. Um, And I think it's very hard to do that unless you collect your data directly yourself and own your own data. And I think until we sort of started building what we're building, the only way to do that is to build a large custom stack with engineers and data scientists and stuff. So that's my shameless plug uh, for Solve and I'll get off my soapbox now. Um, But uh, it's great to hear kind of how you're thinking about this as a a thought leader in in the space. I had two last little things here was one was just, you expanded overseas on the back of a Huffington Post article, largely. I might be sort of simplifying that a little bit, but maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that and, and the challenges of expanding overseas from New Zealand. Like it's, we are at the bottom of the world. I was on a women's entrepreneurship conference in Hawaii and met a freelance reporter. I still remember her name, May May Fox, changed my life, who wrote an article for Forbes. And honestly, I was so excited because Forbes magazine is Forbes magazine. And I thought everyone would read it and... Boom, a tech would be global. Nobody read it, um, which was not her fault at all. It was just in an obscure side of Forbes.com. And um, it was pretty gutted, but it, uh, two weeks later, I woke up to a Facebook message of all things, or it is, I don't know. And um, it was a reporter from the Huffington Post who said, loved your story. I've just um, written an article about you in the Huffington Post. And that's when I realized we had hundreds of thousands of orders and emails and messages. And it was horrendous. And I, and I and honestly, I look back now and smile, but it was horrendous. It wasn't fun. We had to email 98% of those people and say, there's just no way we can do your order. Um, we're a tiny business. I had four people on the team at that point. This was 2016. We'd done our first raise, but we didn't have really any money. We were still making 50 bars a day. It was crazy. How many bars do you make now? And how big is the team now, just for people's reference? 50,000 bars a day now. Wow. But um, the team is now 38 strong. Yeah, so it's still, that's pretty lean still. It's still lean for it is. how much success you've had. It is, but um, we have a lot of amazing people. Um, yeah, so that was it was it was horrible. It was stressful. And Britney Spears and Ashton Kutcher both tweeted it, which was great. But again, just sort of added poured fuel on the fire. But um, that really showed us that there was a lot of interest for this product. It was something that people wanted, and in particular, seemed to want it from the USA. So that was where we looked at our 
options mostly it in you know a lot of people came in distributors retailers approached us through that again through that article uh, so we talked to a few of them and then decided instead of just talking to who comes to us we will also go out and, and see if there's anyone who would suit us better met a few distributors and really we started from there I mean obviously it's a very long story uh, but that is you're right that's the Huffington yeah. Post is absolutely what kicked things off yeah I love that um, last question final question and thank you so much for joining us today because it's been awesome just if you had some parting advice for entrepreneurs whether they're thinking of starting their own business or they might be working on one at the moment um, we have a lot of entrepreneurs we work with and friends and would just love to hear you know any kind of advice from your journey or what you think might help them along their way I guess there's a couple. There's one, don't over plan to the point where you don't ever start anything. I know lots of people have said, oh, I had this idea when I was younger and then I never did it. And I said, why don't you do it now? Oh, I'm too old. You're never too old. But it's such a shame that people put something off that they desperately want to do because they feel that they're not ready or that it will go wrong. You know, you should never let fear of, fear of failure hold you back. I know that everybody says that, but it's really genuinely true. And the other thing is speak up. I am naturally, despite what, you know, I, I, I'm more introverted than extroverted. But I find conflict terrifying and I don't actually think I've got much better over the last 10 years. Um, and as a result, when I have a, an opinion that differs from most in the room, I will often squash it or I won't put my point across when really I should do. And that has cost money and time and caused more conflict in the long run than had I actually said something in the first place. You know, um, So learning that having a, a differing opinion is not a bad thing. Speaking your mind, as long as you do it in a respectful manner, does not have to be dramatic or, or controversial. There is room for every opinion at the table and you should absolutely have one and you don't have to fall in line. The only thing I've never ever compromised on is our values but I just think if I'd spoken up about a few things, you know, I didn't like that piece of branding or I didn't like this, then sometimes things would have been quicker. Be more assertive. That's great advice. And I think especially um, as someone who's planned a lot of things at a young age and then overthought them and not delivered or not started <laughs> those things. Um, yeah, I can definitely relate. I think that's definitely the risk. You know, you, you sort of put too much weight and expectation on something and uh, the better thing is to just start and uh, start learning and start iterating. So love that. Um, well, thank you so much. It's been such an honor having you on the show. You're definitely an inspiration to the next entrepreneurs coming through. And um, yeah, uh, and, and just amazing for New Zealanders to, to look up to someone who's been able to achieve this and grow a global company so quickly as well um, from New Zealand is, is very cool and have a positive impact, which is uh, the bigger thing as well, really changing the industry. So thank you very much. Congrats on the success and uh, look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you very much for having me. And um, look, I get a lot of the credit and it's entirely, you know, my team are genuinely phenomenal and it's important that people know that. That's good. That's always a great point as well. There's not many companies that are succeeding with uh, one amazing person at the top. It's, it is a good team. So um, great to hear and congrats to you and the whole team on the success today.